Welcome to The Great Social Experiment, Episode 3. Well, I have a different vision of what a rational healthcare system is all about. <laughs> Instead of providing massive profits for the drug companies and the insurance companies and Wall Street, we must provide a health care system that provides quality health care to every man, woman, and child in this country in a cost-effective way. And that is, and that is precisely what Medicare for all is all about. Do you believe, Bernie Sanders, that Medicare for all or a single-payer system of universal health care would guarantee quality and cost savings? Progressives often talk about it like it's the cure-all, the panacea of our health care woes. But if that were the case, why are we spending more than other countries on dialysis with worse results? And why don't we have over half our patients waitlisted for a transplant? Kidney care is one of the closest examples to a single payer we have. And yet it doesn't fall in line with the progressive messaging we often hear. One lesson that I think is clear, economist Professor Ellison, is that single payers don't necessarily solve or even really make better issues related to quality, justice, and cost reduction these big challenges that we're grappling with right now. And I don't think that that's an indictment of single payer as a solution, but I think it is a warning that if you want to put all your eggs in one basket and have a single payer, then you need to be sure to get the incentives right because people are going to respond to them. They're going to try to take advantage of them and they're going to do that very effectively. In other words, the players of any industry including healthcare, are always going to try to milk the system as much as they can, regardless if it's a single-payer or multi-payer. Think about it. Defense contractors participate in what's essentially a single-payer system, right? They have one customer, the government. But does anybody in their right mind believe that these companies aren't trying to milk our tax dollars as much as they can? If we think of access to transplant the better of two treatments as a microcosm of access to quality care in our larger system, it starts to paint a picture on the importance of getting financial incentives right and the length players will go to take advantage of them. And with kidney care, there are two players that monopolize the industry, Davida and Fresenius. According to the Department of Justice website, both companies have been sued by the federal government multiple times, and both have paid out hundreds of millions of dollars in settlements for fraudulent activity. As recently as 2019, Fresenius, a German company, agreed to pay $231 million to the U.S. government to resolve charges of foreign corruption. According to Brian Benchkowski, the former head of the DOJ's criminal division, 
Fresenius doled out millions of dollars in bribes across the globe to gain a competitive advantage. But when it comes to patient care, their stories get more nuanced. Both run decentralized organizations. So while they're run by corporate bodies, the values and operations at each of their clinics are determined to an extent by the staff at those clinics. So when it comes to transplant education and patient care, some clinics, even within the same company, are better than others. I transferred to DeVita from Fresenius, and that was the best. Lance really liked DeVita, but here again is patient Daryl Taylor talking about his transplant education. It wasn't offered to me at Gambro, DeVita, none of those places. And I give these examples partly to acknowledge that there are tens of thousands of employees at both companies that work hard every day to care for patients. That said, the drive of both corporations to continually increase profits by exploiting government regulations seems to have pervaded throughout their cultures and to the detriment of their patients. So in my opinion, the, the most salient example has to do with a drug that's called Epigen Alpha, or EPO for short. Remember the whole Lance Armstrong cycling scandal? He was doping using EPO. EPO is an anemia drug given to dialysis patients. And both corporations bought large quantities at negotiated, discounted wholesale prices and then turned around and sold it back to Medicare for a profit. So before 2011... Medicare paid for EPO based on the dose administered to patients. So the more a patient got, the more Medicare would pay out. And for many years, EPO doses soared. And this was very concerning because there are real risk factors associated with excessive EPO use. In particular, it's been linked to increased risk of mortality and cardiac events such as heart attacks. The government was so concerned that in 2011, Medicare changed how they reimbursed for the drug. And that followed a whistleblower lawsuit, which alleged that DeVita overused and overbilled for EPO. Now, this seems like a lot of emphasis for one drug, until you realize that at times, EPO accounted for up to 40% of DeVita's earnings and was Medicare's single largest drug expenditure. DeVita settled the whistleblower lawsuit for $55 million and, of course, denied any wrongdoing pointing out that behind every dose of EPO was a doctor's prescription. How much EPO to administer? Well, that was a doctor's judgment. In other words, to suggest that doctors would somehow blindly rubber stamp orders with regards to dosing is insulting. But that is why Professor Ellison's study is so compelling. It shows how these smaller, independent clinics changed what things they did differently when they were acquired by corporate chains. And they looked at more than just transplant. We found that independent facilities, when they were acquired, patients at those facilities saw their EPO doses nearly double. We're looking at the same patient in the same facility before and after the acquisition. And we see a strikingly sharp increase in EPO beginning the very month of acquisition. And then to round this story out, we also see increases in the very adverse events related to high EPO doses, right? So patients are hospitalized for cardiac events more often, 
and their survival rates decrease. But the story actually doesn't end there. Because when the government changed how they reimbursed Depot, they bundled it with dialysis, meaning clinics would be paid a lump sum for everything. If they wanted to use an excessive amount of EPO, they could, but it would be at their own cost. Shortly after the change took effect, Amgen, the maker of EPO, reported a 14% decrease in sales for the drug. In fact, the use of EPO dropped even more than the government expected. Two separate government audits showed that the dialysis industry was now making money using less EPO up to $880 million compared to what the government allotted for it. This is all to say that findings like this have consistently and repeatedly caused people, including their own employees, to assert that these corporations prioritize profit over patients, that the culture to meet numbers is the bottom line. And as Professor Ellison's studies showed, In no place has this likely been more evident to the patients themselves than how they have staffed. They're using fewer employees to treat more patients. They're also treating more patients per dialysis machine. So a larger volume of patients to increase profits, but fewer employees to take care of them. But they're shifting their workers towards lower skilled employees. The product of all of this, making many patients feel like a widget, on a factory line. It was like, number one, number two, you, I was treated like a number, pretty much. All those years, like a number. Next, next, really, that's how you're treated. Or consider how Lance learned to not pass out when he started dialysis. Well, people in the lobby, you know, we- Which people lobby? The patients that's on dialysis, we, we all have slot times and we talk because we like a family. We see each other every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So they educate me. I, you know, I tell them like symptoms and they like, well, Lance, if you feel this sensation, you feel that. No doctor or nurse or tech came up to you after you passed out and said, hey, well, maybe this is what we can do to prevent this from happening again? No, no, not, no. Their model was just to get you in and get you, you know, get as much people in and get you out. To get you in and get you out. A sentiment I heard over and over and over again from patients being treated at their clinics. And when you take this with the totality of their lawsuits, it doesn't lead to much confidence that they'll prioritize and commit the resources to educate patients about a treatment that will detract from their bottom line. And of course, all of this is something that the doctors who treat patients at these clinics must be aware of. So then the question is, how did this all happen? To understand how kidney care became what it is today, we go back to where it began for Lance. The Cleveland Clinic Foundation is unquestionably one of the most prestigious healthcare systems in the country. And when you consider who does and doesn't get transplanted, being a patient at or even living close to a progressive academic hospital like the Cleveland Clinic is an immediate leg up. And on top of that, the doctors at the Cleveland Clinic are paid a salary 
by the hospital, not per patient. So for a new kidney patient, it would appear that Lance was in the right place at the right time. But Lance is adamant he wasn't informed. And this was 20 years ago. So it would be unreasonable to expect any doctor to remember his case. But as you'll see, it's almost irrelevant to speak with any doctor that did treat him. If our concern is why up to more than 200,000 people haven't been put on the waitlist for a transplant, we have to start by looking at the larger system. And at the Cleveland Clinic, that means going back a decade before Lance arrived. Well, I sure appreciate you taking time to meet with me today. And this was supposed to be the end of an interview on the history of cardiac surgery. Origins of the coronary artery bypass procedure. But then the interviewee suggests another question. One thing you didn't ask me about is how I went from surgery to CEO. This is Dr. Floyd Liu, the late cardiac surgeon turned CEO and perhaps one of the most influential people in healthcare since the late 1980s. Yes. Tell me about and that. And I don't know whether, yeah. I mean, don't <laughs> put my question on the video when you edit it, but, uh, you know. In 1989, the Cleveland Clinic was in the midst of a shaky financial situation, which demanded a change in leadership. And I kept complaining as a member of the search committee about the candidates for the job. And so they finally said, well, if you don't like it, give us a plan. <laughs> so I gave them a strategic plan and uh, they said, we, we want you to be the CEO. That plan was to not only reverse economic problems, but to exert and foster a bold entrepreneurism. They began to aggressively acquire other hospitals and health centers. We had so many acquisitions, our health system got huge. Deepened ties to big business and started to think in ways that are seemingly at odds for a nonprofit organization. One of many examples, according to Cleveland Magazine, was a push to attract ultra-wealthy foreigners, often by whining and dining international diplomats in D.C., to the swanky hospital accommodations that Lance experienced firsthand. Along with his floor mate, Sheikh Zayed, the late president of the United Arab Emirates, ruler of Abu Dhabi, and at the time, one of the world's richest men, with a $23 billion fortune. It was a private floor. When I got up to walk, it was uh, security guards on every doorway. Dr. Loop's plan worked. The financial picture changed dramatically in the first year. But that wasn't the case for the dialysis unit. According to a source there, an internal assessment concluded that it was losing money, which was a big contrast to the many other clinics that had popped up in the Cleveland area. They were hugely profitable. So in 1997, the Cleveland Clinic and its competitor, Metro Health System, started a joint venture with the Renal Care Group, making the clinic one of the first academic medical centers to partner with a for-profit dialysis corporation. Which means that the clinic, already relying on a nurse to educate patients about transplant because it was time-consuming, now partnered with a multi-billion dollar company 
with no incentive to get patients transplanted. The clinic's joint venture not only brought in millions, vastly growing its dialysis service, but it helped legitimize these unions and provided a model for numerous other academic medical centers across the country. And if we consider that many of our most progressive academic centers where patients are most likely to be informed still have a conflict of interest, it starts to put things into perspective. Dialysis started in hospitals like the Cleveland Clinic, and it was extremely expensive. But when the government expanded Medicare to everyone with kidney failure, it also created a business opportunity. And naturally, the first people to realize that were doctors. Those profitable competitors that had popped up around the Cleveland area were owned by doctors. So in the early 90s, about 80% of dialysis clinics were locally owned and operated. Hospitals and small independent clinics. And then the remaining 20% were owned by dialysis chain organizations. Like the renal care group. And through the 90s and into the 2000s, these chains went on a really aggressive buying spree. Which ultimately led to the market we have today, where two chains, Davida and Fresenius Medical Care, dominate. But when they acquired these clinics, they did something smart. They encouraged independent doctors to either retain a stake in or buy a stake in these clinics because that's where they get their business. The nephrologists, they are the gatekeepers. They have a lot of influence in deciding where patients are treated. And if you're a doctor, you're going to send patients to a clinic you have an interest in. According to its own website, DeVita alone had 671 clinics involved in joint ventures by 2018. And considering they seem to be targeting these business arrangements to private nephrology groups, these deals seem to extend far beyond academic institutions, making the financial incentives of an untold number of independent nephrologists not just aligned with dialysis corporations, but intertwined. So what effect have these joint ventures had on access to transplant? The answer is, we really don't know, because Medicare has made it extremely difficult to get data. There are at least two Academic studies aiming to answer this question, and both had to resort to submitting a request under the Freedom of Information Act. And while those studies might give us a bird's eye view, they won't tell us what happened to Lance. And the frustrating truth is, we may never know what was going on in the minds of his doctors. Doctors don't write the rationale for business decisions in medical records. And again, this was 20 years ago. But thinking like that, looking for a smoking gun, is a distraction. It's a wild goose chase when all we really need to know is that Lance saw a nephrologist multiple times in the hospital and at least once a month after that. 12 times per year, up to 48 times before he learned about transplant and up to 96 times before he learned about living donation. All of those visits 
time after time, month after month, going to see a specialist for a disease without being properly informed about the best treatment for that disease. How does that make you feel? I mean, now it made me feel, you know, kind of upset because I could have probably got a kidney. But the criteria back then, if I'm looking at it now, I probably still couldn't have got it because they want you to do a bait so that's adamant about raising that money. And it was kind of hard. Yes, you heard that right. Bake sale. Why, you ask, would Lance be asked to raise money through a bake sale? Sounds more like a request of an elementary school class, as if getting to the waitlist wasn't difficult enough. But believe it or not, this ask oh, yes. was actually a thing. Again, Professor Rachel Patzer. This is so fascinating to me. There's some transplant centers that require that you fundraise. And we've heard, I won't name the center, but they require you to fundraise $10,000 before you're approved to get on their waiting list. I've heard amounts ranging from $2,600 all the way up to $30,000. Not only arbitrary, but for you, probably confusing. Since up until now, you've been told that the government will cover kidney failure. And they do but they don't cover literally everything, like the ability to take time off from work to recover from surgery or pay for transportation and lodging if the patient lives far from the hospital. But historically, the most common reason given, and what Lance was told, is that he needed money to pay for immunosuppression drugs. To pay for the immunosuppression drugs after Medicare drops you because they want to make sure that you have funding of your own to cover it. Everyone who gets a transplant has to take medication to prevent their immune system from attacking their new kidney. These drugs are costly, ten dollars to $20,000 per year, and Medicare would cover them. But if you're like Lance and younger than the age of 65, when Medicare normally kicks in, they would only cover these drugs for three years, after which hopefully you'd have private insurance to help afford them. So many transplant centers were hesitant to transplant young patients with no savings, like Lance, because they were afraid those patients wouldn't be able to afford those medications after three years. They'd stop taking the drug, their body would reject the organ, and they'd be back on dialysis. And it's a waste of a kidney, waste of time. So they wanted you to have a backup plan long term. So that was discouraging a lot of people. But on the surface, it sounds reasonable, right? I mean, don't transplant someone unless you're sure they'll be able to afford their medication. Especially because there are studies which show that transplanted patients lose their kidney at a higher rate at that three-year mark. But what sense does it make, or is it even possible, to reliably forecast the amount of money a patient who is chronically ill now will make three years from now after getting a transplant? Yeah, I agree. Again, Dr. Janice Lee. Particularly because these patients on dialysis oftentimes can't work, but now that they've been given the gift of life with a kidney transplant, they're able to resume whatever type of job or profession they had before, get private insurance, and be able to cover the cost. And this catch-22 of requiring a chronically ill population already struggling financially to show money 
in order to get the opportunity to work and make money, only takes a system already plagued by socioeconomic and racial disparities and exacerbates it. But even if it didn't, think of the logic from a policy perspective. If patients lose their transplant because they can't afford their medication, they go back on dialysis and then you have that $100,000 per year charge on dialysis for the patient that goes back to Medicare. And who pays for Medicare? You and I. Which is why in December of 2020, after decades of pleading by advocates, Congress passed a law enabling Medicare to save itself money by covering these drugs. And as you'll see later, this propensity to be penny smart but pound foolish is a hallmark of our whole healthcare system. So if you miss steps in their evaluation process, Correct. what happened? The fir- if you miss the first time, like don't complete it, you won't be able to reapply for a year. This was well before Lance transferred to Emory and Dr. Lee. Because you missed their step, you didn't complete the, um, the process. And did you miss any of their steps? Yes, yes. That's when uh, the phase of the, the money, how to, to raise it, and it, it discouraged me because they s- said you have the X, X amount of dollars to get in there, you know, to try to. So I just stopped at that. I didn't reapply for a while. From what I can tell, these financial requirements compounded a feeling of distrust and bitterness that Lance had towards our healthcare system. So much that by the time he transferred to Emory and Dr. Lee, he actually wasn't interested in transplantation. Are we talking about skepticism about him being able to afford it or medical mistrust? I think the whole nine yards, actually. Lance Douglas Jackson, or Dougie, as his loved ones call him, was born in Cleveland, Ohio, to Lois and Larry Jackson. Not long after, there was a divorce. My mother remarried, and the gentleman did not want me or Lance, so we went to go live with our grandparents. This is Lakita Jackson. And I'm Lance's older sister. Did you know what was going on? Yes. Did he know what was going on? No, not really. He was only five. In my interview and phone calls with Lance, he often uses mother and grandmother interchangeably. For part of his childhood, he believed his grandmother was his mother, and his mother was his sister. We have not seen her since May of 1978. Was there a reason that you guys ended up with your grandparents as opposed to your father? My father was in, um, incarcerated at the time that my mom and her new husband left. Their father, a drug addict, served multiple stints in prison and never really came around much when he was out. He would make promises. I can remember him telling my mom, which is my grandmother, tell them to get their bags together and I'll be back by. And we would get our stuff together and we would sit on the porch all day. And people make jokes about it, but it's true. We did that. In his own way, Lance turned this heartache into becoming incredibly, and I mean incredibly, independent. He moved out of his grandparents' house, though just around the corner, at the age of 17, bought a car, 
and was able to do this because... He's had a job ever since he was 13 years old. Just imagine someone who's worked since puberty, often more than one job at the same time. This in his 20s, to just been told, you in complete renal failure. You go from being on top to being on the bottom, you, you would be angry. Lance was angry. It was in his chart with him being not just angry, an angry black man. Really? Yes. What's the difference? It's more racial. I take it as though there's nothing that you can do to calm him down. There's nothing that you can do to appease him. For a second, let's take stock that the threshold to impatience or anger of a normal, healthy person is often getting less than eight hours of sleep. Now compare that with literally the inability to pee or work, perpetually feeling sick, and the helplessness of often needing to rely on others for basic things. But that was not his case. It was no one was listening to what he felt was going on with his body. They don't care. They just want the patient sitting down and they can build the insurance. This is Emmanuel Gonzalez. He's a dialysis technician, one of the lower-paid, lower-skilled employees. They're shifting their workers towards lower-skilled employees. Who make up the bulk of direct patient care at clinics. Emmanuel has never met Lance, never worked in the same clinic, lives across the country in California, and in fact started his career almost a decade and a half after Lance became a patient, during which time dialysis mortality in the U.S. has improved. While good health care is certainly more than the rate at which people live or die, mortality is important, which is partly why I was interested in talking with him. In a sense, to help give us a frame of reference, knowing that dialysis care today even if it doesn't sound great, is still better than it was when Lance was first treated. What was your impression of what the job would be like? What we were taught in school was you're supposed to follow the rules. You know, don't you can't take shortcuts, anything like that. The training uh, didn't reflect what was really going on in these facilities. It was the total opposite. Emmanuel describes a physical and exhausting job plagued by the financial pressure to get patients in and out, a high employee turnover rate compounded by low pay, and sometimes unsanitary conditions, more likely at clinics in poor neighborhoods. And for Lance, the perils of this were almost immediate. I kept getting staff in the first month, and I was wondering how I'm getting staff because... Staffed? Staffed. Staff infections. And I will always get it, and like by my beard, my jawline, it will like get so bad where it open up and you can see your jaw and everything because it, and then you have to go to the hospital and get treated. So I asked the doctor when I got treated and then he told me why. The techs, they had so many people, it was so many patients per tech. They weren't changing their gloves or they weren't washing their hands in between, they were rushing. When I started in, in, in 2000, they were wearing two gloves to take one off and, you know, and be rushing, trying to put the next person on. Were you scared? 
yeah, I was scared because I didn't know what was going on. I'm like, well, how I'm getting this? And it's like twice within the first month. Avoidable complications and not feeling heard became so distressing that by 2005, Lance had learned to cannulate or insert the needle himself, eventually taking a class and learned how to do dialysis at home. And what made it even more painful was the conviction that if he had more money yes, or private insurance, you were treated better. I mean, there are clinics that they only have 10 patients in the morning and they have like 24 stations because the patients want to be by themselves and they're private payers. While Medicare covers the overwhelming majority of dialysis patients, some have private insurance. And because private payers have no bargaining power with a duopoly that controls the dialysis industry, they pay up to four times what Medicare pays. I've even had a manager tell me, oh, we got someone coming in private payers, so make sure you give them the red carpet treatment. They get them water, coffee, ice, you name it, they get it for them. Unnecessary complications because of money. Witnessing preferential treatment given to those who do have money. And then finally, being told that in order to get your life back and get a transplant, you need to fundraise an impossible amount of money. He was getting Social Security and working part-time, and that was just to pay bills. From the moment Lance's eyes opened at the Cleveland Clinic, he was exposed to a two-tier system. It was like being in a hotel. And at the same time that he was fiercely independent and loved what money could buy, he was bitter. And if I had to guess, deep down inside, pained by a feeling of indignity, which came out as anger when he couldn't afford it. He sort of used to say things like, well, that's discriminatory against minorities. So I think he was just like kind of... He was at his ropes end, just... Him not wanting to be treated less. In a Hollywood movie, Lance would meet Dr. Lee. They'd have an inspiring conversation about transplantation. And then we'd cut to him in a hospital gown. But in the real world, it doesn't happen overnight. A transplant evaluation is often a long, drawn-out process, which includes a slew of tests, repeating tests if patients don't pass the first time, a psychological assessment, and yes, even at the most liberal centers, financial conversations to make sure patients have adequate support for the recovery. On the shoulders of a healthy person, it would be a major pain in the neck. So for many on dialysis, the thought of having to navigate that when you're sick, depressed, and barely keeping it together is a whole other story. I guess I was, I was stuck in this cycle of being on dialysis. I, I couldn't get, I couldn't grasp my mind around, you know, the transplant, what happens after and all that. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't get that far. To be honest with you, I really wanted to die because I didn't want to live like that. I really didn't. Even after Dr. Lee convinced Lance to give transplant another shot, he had both medical and emotional setbacks, none of which he would have had years earlier. And as time passed, his health deteriorated. You get swelling, your fingers stretch, people get buckeye. And most serious, 
The passing out that he experienced when he first started dialysis came back with a vengeance. My blood pressure was so low, if I walk outside and it's hot, and like 70 degrees, I'm on the ground once I hit the door. The threshold, I'm laying on the ground like a, like a sack of potatoes because my blood pressure drops like rapidly. For how long did this occur? My blood pressure dropped from 2009 to 2018. By 2018, my blood pressure was 60-something over 30. That's a dead man. So I would have to put my hand outside the door and feel the heat. But once I put my hand outside the door, my body laying inside the, um, the, the place. So well, if I go to doctor appointments, I have to have them bring my car to me with the air on. Then they have to help me to the car. But that was going on from, I say, 2009 to 18. At least in part because he didn't have the money. Long term, that's long term side effects of being on dialysis. What Lance could have been told when he originally did seek a transplant before many of his complications, mistrust, and bitterness is that not every transplant center requires patients to fundraise. In fact, there are no rules on where patients need to be transplanted or how many centers they can register with. This is why we see Californians travel out of state to get evaluated at centers where the wait time is less. In other words, there were other options, both locally in Georgia and in Ohio where Lance's family lived. And you know who would have known that? Lance's doctor. Emory, it was the same, but they didn't like stress it like that. You know, they was like, well, let's just do the workup. You know, don't worry about that. It's other avenues. So I applied, got evaluated. So I got on this in 2018. Mind you, I didn't put any money. Lance had approached two relatives about being a living donor. And for reasons we didn't get into, they both backed out. After that, he resolved himself to wait for a deceased donor. And within about a month, he was at the top of the list. Now, if you consider that the average wait for a kidney is about three to five years, that seems like an incredibly short wait. One month to get to the top. But there was a reason. So in 2014, there was a new kidney allocation system that was implemented. It used to be your time waiting, that was based on when you got to the transplant center and your waitlisting time started. So you had to have been educated about transplant, referred for transplant, undergone an evaluation and been approved for waitlisting. That's when your clock and the time started ticking. Now, with this new policy that was implemented in 2014, the time waiting actually started at the time of diagnosis of end-stage kidney disease. So instead of Lance's wait starting once he was accepted at a transplant center, the new system clocked his wait back to the year 2000 when he started dialysis. It's backdated. It's backdated. And this really was meant to help patients who had difficulty getting on the list to begin with. Why was this even an issue? What prompted them to change it? The prompt was the existing racial and ethnic disparities in access to transplantation. And knowing that at the time that patients were getting listed, there were many more minorities who had been on dialysis for much longer than their counterparts that were Caucasian, for example. So that disparity 
it felt very unfair. So a patient's coming and they've already had this disease for so long, but they're only now showing up to the transplant center to get on the waiting list. How much longer were they on dialysis? So on average, the difference between, say, a Caucasian and an African-American patient was several years. So the racial disparities in access to transplant were so bad, not in the 1950s or 60s, but in the year 2014, that the system itself was changed. And Lance jumped to the top of the list within a month. And if you think about it, the fact that it even took a month for someone like Lance, who had already been on dialysis for 18 years, to get to the top, means there were likely others ahead of him that the system deemed more of a priority because of their delay in being referred for transplant. Now keep in mind, this only helped patients once they made it to the list, not those still trying to get on it. Nevertheless, you would think that something as big as a change in the allocation system would serve as a powerful reminder, a newsflash, of the importance of referring patients for transplant. But immediately after the changes in 2014, we've started to see a decrease. This is Dr. Summit Mohan. I'm a transplant nephrologist at Columbia University in New York City and a clinical epidemiologist. The drop in patients listed was so rapid that by 2018, it had wiped out almost 15 years of gains. The reason? By backdating a patient's weight to diagnosis, instead of when they're accepted at a transplant center. It eliminates that sense of urgency that I have to refer somebody. If I'm in an area where the wait time is five years, and I'm starting somebody on dialysis today, the general sense is it doesn't matter because they're going to wait five years. If my referral isn't going to impact the wait, why rush? So that sense of urgency goes away. The obvious problem with this is that delaying referral may mean delaying learning about living donation which could greatly decrease or eliminate the weight for the transplant. But there's another reason most people don't know, and this gets us into truly shocking territory. There is a myth that you need many, many years of wait time before you're even going to get a first organ offer. Most people will get an organ offer very quickly after they've ended up on the wait list. Not a few. But most people will get an organ offer shortly after being added to the waitlist. My guess is that your eyebrows have drawn together in confusion. And to be honest, when I learned that, so did mine. But not only is it true, what causes it to happen has enormous repercussions. I'm going to explain it to you in the next episode. The Great Social Experiment was created, produced, and edited by me, David Chrisman. It was engineered and mixed by Samuel Chacintu. If you'd like this series, please share it, subscribe, and leave a review. And if you want to support my work, or you're a patient in need of resources, or just want to learn more, 
please visit thegreatsocialexperiment.net. That's thegreatsocialexperiment.net. Thanks.